I think anyone who's opposed to panda diplomacy is a curdmudgeonly old fart. I am a, a big fan of panda diplomacy. I'm not a big fan of the fact that China doesn't liberally allow other countries to benefit from the global supply of pandas. I think China's export controls on pandas are a, uh, a grave threat to human happiness. And I think China needs to share the intellectual property embedded in pandas and let other countries keep baby pandas born on their soil, not have this policy of pulling American-born pandas out of America uh, and returning them to China. I think, uh, I think we need the genetic uh, blueprint from a Chinese panda so that we can have second-generation American pandas. Today's podcast is brought to you by International Intrigue, a letter delivering daily geopolitical news and insights straight to your inbox. I, unsurprisingly, spend a lot of my time myopically focused on China, but I'm also really curious about other things happening in the world. International Intrigue helps keep me up to date for just five minutes a day in an efficient and entertaining way, providing me the context I need on stories like Venezuela's plot to annex Guyana, Argentine elections, and India's assassination plot on U.S. territory. Sign up for free at their website, internationalintrigue.io. Link is in the podcast description. Sester, ladies and gentlemen, is a fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations and author of the fantastic Follow the Money blog about international trade flows. He also spent a year in the Biden administration at the U.S. Trade Representative. Uh, Co-hosting with me today, coming back for episode two, is Kyla Scallon, a YouTuber substacker about uh, China and macroeconomics, who also has a book coming out um, in early next year entitled In This Economy? Question mark. Brad, I want to kick us off with um, a quote from Logan Wright, my former colleague of the Rhodium Group, who uh, recently said in the Wall Street Journal that Beijing will never be able to make a credible claim to global economic primacy. China's GDP may one day reach 90% or even 100% of the U.S.'s, but there is no realistic scenario in which it reaches uh, 150 or 200%. Uh, implication being that, you know, two to three years ago, people thought this was, um, you know, a definite possibility, if not even kind of baked into where uh, global uh, growth trends were, were heading. Um, care to... Um, reflect on that, Brad, maybe first um, on the sort of like analytical question of whether or not comparing uh, nominal GDP is like a thing that uh, makes sense when you're talking about the biggest, uh, the two biggest uh, countries on the planet from a natural power. Well, I think the most important thing is that the U.S. and China are the two biggest economies on the planet. And uh, the precise size of China's dollar GDP, whether it's 10% above or 10% below that of the United States, not that that doesn't change the basic fact that China's uh, a peer of the U.S. in broad terms. I think Logan is right to say that, you know, it's uh, like 10 years ago, there were a set of forecasts where China would be way bigger than the U.S. just because China has a substantially larger population base. And if you have uh, a sufficient convergence to U.S. income levels uh, with a bigger population base, you'll be substantially bigger. But the pace of convergence is clearly slowed. And, uh, you know, China's uh, demography means that China's uh, relative working age population is shrinking while the United States continues to grow. So in that sense, 
Um, I think it, I agree with Logan's broad assessment that China's not going to be way bigger than the U.S. Um, but I also think it's important for the U.S. to recognize that China is, you know, basically an economy of the same size, maybe a little smaller. But in some ways, uh, China's already bigger. I mean, China has a much greater capacity uh, for manufacturing production now than the U.S. China's a bigger source of commodity import demand uh, than the U.S. Uh, you know, we're, we're lucky, I guess, that uh, our, our, our oil uh, consumption is more or less matched by our oil production. Uh, but China has become as big an oil importer as we used to be. Um, so they're just a set of measures uh, that are not well captured in dollar GDP that I do think are relevant for thinking about uh, the big, great game, so to speak, between the U.S. and China. Uh, you know, how different would the world look from a sort of, you know, macroeconomic and geopolitical perspective if you ended up with the not zero, you know, within the error bar of how you want to measure it 10% here or there. But, you know, we, we were looking at a future where in 2035 or 2040, you you sort of on 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 every dimension that was relevant, uh, you know, China was able to um, keep up that that six, seven percent growth rate with the U.S. still sort of like stumbling along. And um, it was sort of clear to everyone that on you know most metrics, China was the the, the most important global economic player. I think that's an unknowable, in a sense, question. I think, uh, you know, even if China would have been the biggest individual economy, the G7 collectively would have been roughly as big, if not bigger. And the G7 do have, uh, you know, significant, although not perfect, harmony of interests and uh, capacity for joint action. Uh, what, what, uh, and, you know, even with a China that is, uh, only ballpark of the same size or slightly smaller than the U.S., uh, China is still capable of constructing its own alternative uh, systems. I mean, it, uh, the Belt and Road uh, basically uh, was a function of China creating development banks that were on the scale or bigger than uh, the multilateral development banks that the U.S. set up, uh, helped set up after World War II. Uh, you know, China's network of trade inside Asia is quite dense. It's quite deep. It's it's constrained by the fact that China doesn't import that much when you take out commodities. Uh, but there, you know, China ha exercises a substantial amount of weight in the global economy, even without having quite the same dollar GDP as the U.S. That relative weight goes up. But I think, you know, the most important thing is not relative economic size. It's kind of cohesion of the groups that you lead. It's the structure of the institutions you create. And then it's sort of the asymmetries uh, in uh, a set of relationships. Um, uh, a China that's substantially bigger uh, than its trading partners actually has a lot of difficulty relying on its trading partners for growth. It just sure. uh, mathematically becomes harder. So uh, China's greatest scope to grow through exports, ironically, came when it was a much smaller economy, and uh, it could generate a lot of growth relative to the size of its own economy without putting much of a burden on the rest of the global economy. As China gets bigger, uh, that balance shifts. It becomes harder for China to grow through exports without 
cutting into the opportunities other have to to grow through expanding their own manufacturing and production. Uh, so I think you know you need to look at balances, imbalances, asymmetries, uh, and then there is a sort of tyranny of size. Uh, big economies generally have to grow on their own accord. Um, and then there's the more complex question about you know kind of how all of this relates to military power, military capabilities, uh, and um, uh, sanctioning scope and other uh, kind of uh, economic statecraft, you ability to use e the tools of economic statecraft to achieve your way in the world. And, uh, you know, where, where there is a little bit of uh, the bigger you are, the more influential you are, is that, uh, you know, the, the, even if you're less perfect at converting your power or your, your size into influence, uh, if you're big enough, you're going to have influence. But my gut is that you know, China is already big enough that it exercises a lot of influence. Uh, it doesn't punch substantially below its weight. And in some areas, it punches well above its weight. And so I, I think it is, I at least personally don't find it enormously helpful to spend a lot of time worrying about it, precisely how much bigger or how much smaller China is going to be than the U.S. in 2040. Gotcha. Uh, well, so you mentioned sort of institutional capacity to, you know, translate like latent power into extant power. And, um, uh, you know, you just spent a, a year at USTR. Uh, what did you learn from that experience? Oh, I mean, I think the most important thing I learned is that I'm not really cut out to do trade policy. Uh, that trade policy involves a willingness to listen and take input from stakeholders. Uh, and I'm much more of the uh, professorial type that likes to lecture. Um, and I think the other thing, which I think is an obvious point about trade policy, is that uh, trade data plays actually a very small role in U.S. trade policy, maybe too small of a role. And there's a, a generalized tendency to overstate the impact of trade policy on trade flows. Now, some trade policy shifts are indeed significant, like uh, Trump's tariffs hike. Uh, it was a meaningful move. It affected a significant amount of trade. The tariff was significant. So, you know, 25% on 60-ish percent of trade is a real, is a real shock. Uh, but a lot of trade policy has a great deal of public salience, uh, but only affects uh, very uh, small quantities of the economy. Um, and so I do think there's a a gap between uh, what trade policy realistically can do and what some people's expectations are of trade policy. Uh, and, you know, I think that's uh, that was my perception before being in the trenches, and that remains my perception. Um, obviously, a big issue for the U.S. is sort of uh, how to handle the legacy of the Trump tariffs. Uh, and obviously in my year, there is not a lot of movement on that front. Um, in some sense, I think uh, the fact that uh, the phase one targets were set at such unrealistic levels creates kind of a, a structural problem because uh, it, you know it's impossible to make an argument that China has delivered when the most visible commitments uh, were, or were clearly not met. 
Um, actually, there's not even any real movement towards meeting them anymore. U.S. export growth to China has kind of stalled the past year. Um, so, you know, you're just kind of left with an evaluation of whether you want to keep the tariffs as they are or adjust them on their own merits. Uh, that turned out to be a complex discussion. And then there was just you know, a lot of um, uh, discussion uh, about how to resolve uh, the set of, I mean, rather significant, actually, set of uh, trade actions that Trump had initiated against our European allies. And we made some progress on that when I was there. And that process kind of has slowed down. And in a sense, the, the, the discussion has shifted with the Inflation Reduction Act, which um, you know, post-dated my time, but it is uh, an enormously consequential shift in policy, one that doesn't easily fit within the existing uh, trade institutions, uh, one where the U.S. decided as a matter of policy, and I think with full consensus, uh, not to make everything WTO consistent in the way Europe defines WTO consistency. There's always exceptions, exclusions. You can argue it's not a leap. There's a legal case that it is consistent, but it is clearly the U.S. decided to want to discriminate in favor of uh, domestic U.S. production, North American production, in the provision of uh, subsidies for the consumption of green industrial goods. Uh, and the, the theory of the WTO is that those subsidies should be provided on a non-discriminatory basis. Uh, you shouldn't uh, penalize uh, an American consumer that wants to buy goods from Europe or buy goods from China. And that was not the approach built into the law. And then the other problem, not a problem, but you know, other feature of the law is that uh, Manchin and Schumer, when they wrote the final law, uh, they didn't work, you know, they, Europe was initially treated almost in the same way as China. So our allies were not given, consistently given uh, better treatment than China under that law. And I think that, did that has created a set of frictions in the US transatlantic relationship that are unique to the, the Biden era. So it's just a question, you know, if I think what I learned is that Settling trade disputes is actually difficult, and um, uh, that uh, that once uh, any party has won a legal victory in the WTO, they don't want to give up that legal victory easily. Um, Even if talking, the WTO isn't functioning, you never want to give up uh, a potentially useful precedent. So you end up uh, settling narrowly rather than settling broadly. Interesting. Um I want to come back to this point you made about like trade being like weirdly salient relative to its actual impact on trade flows. Um, you know, we're recording this on November 21st. There was some news uh, that came out right before APEC. Um, it was an FT article being like, Biden like decides not to push TPP again, like thanks to Sh Sherrod Brown, um, which seems a little curious to me. But um, more broadly, Brad, I'm curious, like, for your take on to what extent trade deals like this actually matter? Look, um, there's a, an easy answer to that, which is that uh, uh, when the U.S. did not go forward with TPP under Trump, uh, trade with TPP countries actually accelerated rather than decelerated. Yeah. Uh, why? Because uh, US, uh, the U.S. economy was relatively strong. Uh, the dollar was pretty strong. And... Uh, for most goods, 
U.S. tariffs are either zero or low, even if you don't have a, a, a trade agreement. Uh, so, you know, we always have trade agreements. And as I said, everyone who was part of the WTO benefits from the tariffs that were negotiated. Uh, and in many cases, those tariffs for everyone are already at zero. So the incremental impact of what are called free trade agreements is only on those areas where tariffs aren't already zero, and I would say tar where tariffs are not already de minimis. Yeah. And that's a couple of, of, of a few sectors. And there are a lot of things that end up having a huge impact on trade flows that are not covered by trade agreements. They're not part of the negotiations. They're, they're narrow. So, you know, the most obvious is that how, how rapidly demand is growing in the economy, how much we're stimulating. Stimulate more compared to your trade partners are going to import more and you're going to push your currency up and you're going to export less. Tax deals, uh, or not tax deals, but the tax competition and uh, uh, deltas in the way taxes are uh, levied on multinationals across countries can generate huge impacts on trade. So, you know, the TPP was never going to increase U.S. exports of pharmaceuticals because major American pharmaceuticals don't produce in the U.S. for the global market. Why don't they produce in the U.S. for the global market? Because they don't want to pay tax in the U.S. on those profits. They actually don't want to pay tax in the U.S. on the profits and their sales back to the U.S. So that production was always going to happen in Singapore because that's the tax hub of the pharmaceutical industry in Asia. Um, so, you know, I think that people tend to, to think that there's not much trade if you don't have a special free trade agreement when they're actually most countries can do perfectly well uh, as long as they are not discriminated against and get this, the WTO negotiated tariff. Vietnam's exports to the U.S. have absolutely boomed. The U.S. does not have a free trade agreement with Vietnam. It would have had there been TPP. Uh, and then the other thing that really had a big impact on trade with Southeast Asia was increasing tariffs on China which led to sort of a diversion and a shift to final assembly towards Southeast Asia, which by any reasonable estimate, the spillovers to Southeast Asia from the higher tariffs on China are way bigger than the impact of TPP. And then the sort of sons of TPP, daughters of TPP uh, that the U.S. was trying to construct, you know, they explicitly did not include tariff reduction. Uh, so their, their actual incremental impact conventionally measured would be small. Now, there's still some things you can do. You can do like subsidy sharing arrangements for Inflation Reduction Act uh, green subsidies. So I think there's still scope to do uh, interesting agreements, uh, but those agreements are going to be a little bit narrow. And I think it's important not to think that, you know, uh, if you don't have a, there's a tendency to think that if there isn't a free trade agreement, there's no trade. Uh, yeah. Whereas I think the reality is, as long as there's not explicit discrimination that puts you in a worse position than other WTO members, uh, most countries do pretty well trading with the U.S. There's a lot of scope for trade, even without a preferential trade deal. So, 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 why do you think this is this like trade deals loom so large in 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 policymakers' minds? Is it because they're all lawyers and they think you know getting in a room and hashing things out is like a fun thing? Is it just like a a proxy for a, a strategic alliance, so it sort of re reassures allies that, like you know, we're we're behind you and supportive. Um, you know, if it doesn't actually cash out into increased trade flows or like increased growth, like why are we still talking about this? 
I mean, I, I think it's a re an interesting and fair question. I think your the answers you put forward are are reasonable possible explanations. You know, uh, for a lot, yeah, you know, it is something that you can do collectively with another country. And as I said, trade diplomats tend not to focus that much on trade numbers, uh, so it doesn't really matter. You know, as long as you're negotiating and have an active negotiation, uh, it is it. Uh, provides a basis for uh, a lot of conferences, a lot of discussion, a lot of dialogue, and it builds relationships. So, I mean, I think that's the kind of the classic uh, case for doing it and the classic case why it has a foreign policy impact. The downside is that uh, even if you only make it, if you make any incremental change to your, in the free trade agreement, you're going to get blame for any swing in trade even that, ha if that has absolutely no relation to what was actually negotiated in the deal. Sure. Um, so I think that's why there's been uh, a reevaluation of the political case for doing these agreements, in part because, you know, on, uh, on the upside, you probably got more credit than the intrinsic uh, economic uh, upside provided because it was a a form of political agreement. It looked like, you know, a lot of people think trade agreements are trade alliances that are close to alliances. Uh, but the downside is that you also got blamed uh, politically uh, for things that were probably not the direct function of the trade agreement. Uh, the pro you know, by trade agreement, I just mean the the shift from standard WTO MFN tariffs and standard WTO non discrimination rules to the special tariffs, which will not give free trade in everything. They will give relatively lower tariffs on a broader set of goods after a lot of negotiation in a preferential trade agreement. Um, but I think a lot, people don't generally look at the delta. They look at the outcome. Coming back to something you, you mentioned earlier about, uh, you know, China punching above its weight and like mattering a lot. Let's, uh, let's chat de debt restructuring for a little bit. Um, yeah. So I know that you said that you've been doing a lot of work on debt restructuring. And there was a piece from Bank of America talking about the record debt burdens in the United States, you know, deglobalization demographics as a reason that we would stay at 5%. And I'm just curious, like, what your thoughts are on deglobalization, especially relative to debt restructuring, like how those two things tie together? You know, it's, it's worth thinking about deglobalization and it's worth thinking about debt restructuring rather separately. There is a link in the sense that as China globalized, it uh, actually is kind of more ambiguous. As China got big, uh, China decided it didn't want to put all of its reserves in its central bank and just buy U.S. treasuries. Uh, so they decided to do more interesting things like lend them out to uh, partners and neighbors, in, uh, including a lot of low-income countries uh, in Latin America, Africa, Central Asia, Southeast Asia. And that was the Belt and Road. And it was a big thing that used a trillion or so of China's reserves in a new and creative way. Uh, I think that is that has created a set of difficulties uh, that are a bit uh, separate from the deglobalization debate. Um, you know, I, I think the, the, the operating assumption in 2005 was probably a false one. But the operating assumption in 2005, based on the previous 25 years of history, was that over time, the world would become ever more integrated 
And so trade would continue, continue to grow more rapidly than GDP. And obviously, in the first few years after WTO accession, trade grew way more rapidly than Chinese GDP. So China became very, 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 very globalized, 40% of GDP or so in, in exports. And there was sort of a, a, an excessive linear extrapolation of that trend uh, because that trend only was possible with growing trade imbalances. And it was uh, a bit of a, an ahistorical result uh, in the sense that um, you know, the U.S., the EU, other really big economies, if you just look at their extra-regional trade, it wasn't 40% of GDP. It was more like 10. So, you know, it was sort of China was an outlier, uh, and the assumption was it would become an ever-bigger outlier, and that was the way the world would work. And that wasn't true. Um, it's still actually the case that services are pretty char hard to to trade, and there was an upper limit on... Uh, goods globalization with China as this the production engine meeting uh, the rest of the world's demand. And so after the global financial crisis, uh, there, there was technically, you know, you go from an upward slope on exports and imports versus GDP to something that is more flat or declining. The flat or declining, but mostly the decline, is 100% a function of China going from this insane level of exports to GDP to back to a more normal level of exports to GDP. Uh, so they, that, that got portrayed as globalization or deglobalization well before Trump, well before the tariffs, well before the COVID shock, well before the supply chain discussion. Uh, and the interesting thing that has happened in China in the past five years is that if you just look at the Chinese data, China has re-globalized. Exports are rising again as a share of China's GDP, and in a not small way. If you look at China's trade surplus in manufacturers relative to world GDP, or China's overall trade surplus in goods relative to world GDP, that is back up and it's at a record level. 1% of GDP for the overall world GDP for the overall surplus, 2% of world GDP uh, for the manufacturing surplus. So the, the, the story... Uh, that I see is not one of kind of steady progress to an ever more integrated world that was interrupted by Trump, COVID, uh, and uh, Bidenomics uh, emphasis on supply chain security and French join. The story I see is one where the global financial crisis uh, did produce a shock. China responded to that shock with stimulus. China's economy deglobalized, but that was probably healthy and inevitable uh, for a while. And now China's economy, in the face of its own property slump and in the face of stimulus elsewhere, is reglobalizing while we're talking deglobalization. So if you just look at absolute surpluses and deficits, uh, particularly on the good side, which is well measured, uh, China has not deglobalized. The only place where China's deglobalized over time is on its manufacturing imports, which have just kind of trended down. The U.S. economy is not really deglobalized. Uh, imports have been flat as a share of GDP. They haven't been going down. Uh, Europe actually hasn't deglobalized. Europe is actually importing more as a share of European GDP from China than ever. It's kind of come down a bit in the past three or four months, uh, but it went way up in the years before the uh, uh, during the pandemic. 
Um, what what has fractured is the energy supply system inside Europe after Russia's invasion. But to call that deglobalization uh, is a little off because that means that Europe's importing a lot more energy from Africa, from the Americas, from the Middle East. So it's just a fracturing of a regional energy supply chain. So I don't see, like, I think the people tend to assume that the Trump tariffs and the current emphasis on French horn and supply chain security has led to greater concentration of trade among friends. And I don't think that's really true. And I think the way that you see is not really true is that when you look at the overall surpluses and deficits around the world, they are, they are up. And the overall deficit of, say, the G7 with China and the world's autocratic oil exporters is up. So I, that's the sense in which I don't think deglobalization is a, a useful narrative device for framing a much more complex reality. Uh, we're still pretty dependent on China. China is still really dependent on the U.S. for the aggregate demand that allows its big manufacturing surplus. Supply chains have lengthened. Parts have to go to Southeast Asia and Mexico before they're assembled to avoid the tariffs. But the underlying interconnections haven't gone away. So that's my kind of where my rant on deglobalization. On debt, it's just, you know, China really did lend a lot of money. They lend a lot of money to a lot of risky places. Uh, they are not the only people who've lent money to many of those risky places. Some countries access the bond market as well. There are legacy debts to the Paris Club. The World Bank never completely stopped lending. So the restructuring cannot just be handled by the Chinese with themselves because other, other players do have a lot of exposure. Uh, but China's too big not to be part of a coordinated restructuring. And finding ways to coordinate with China has been incredibly difficult and incredibly slow. Uh, so we're sort of inching towards progress. Uh, but that progress is difficult. And what I think I've learned in the past couple of weeks that I hadn't fully realized before is I think the Chinese uh, thought that there was a set of agreed rules and those rules were well structured, well established, and uh, that China just needed to learn those rules and everything would be you know, simple. So it was a process of uh, integrating China into a defined rules and China making a decision about whether yeah. those rules were in its interest or whether it wanted a different system. Uh, what I think the reality is, is that the debt restructuring rules were a bit outdated, uh, particularly for low-income countries. And so they had to be adjusted on the fly to make things work, which wasn't surprising because there hadn't been a lot of restructuring for 20 years. But from the Chinese perception, it's like the rules are being changed on us just as we are trying to learn them. Are they being changed to... to disadvantage us? And I think the answer was generally no. The answer was that the rules were just in some very technical ways a bit dated and had to be adjusted. Uh, but when you're doing that and you're also trying to integrate not just one, but like four or five big new Chinese state actors as creditors, uh, things got bogged down. So um, uh, so Brad, let's, let's take that and continue it with uh, Zambia as a case study. Uh, Zambia uh, borrowed a lot of money uh, from China XM. It borrowed some money from Chinese commercial banks, sometimes in joint projects with XM. There was a big hydroelectric power project. Borrowed some money from China Development Bank. Uh, but it borrowed significant sums from China. So China 
uh, has at least six, maybe seven billion of Zambia's 20 billion or so of external debt. That's, that's a lot. No doubt China is the biggest creditor if you can aggregate the debts of all these different Chinese institutions. And within that, XM, China XM had $4 billion in exposure. So China XM on its own was clearly the biggest single creditor. Uh, but Zambia had $3 billion in international bonds outstanding. Foreign investors had bought maybe $2 billion, but it'd be, it's kind of hard to measure, of uh, Zambian local currency bonds. Legacy lenders in the advanced economies in Israel had lent maybe maybe $2 billion. Uh, some, we you know some banks around the world, not necessarily in the U.S. and Europe, had lent a billion. So you're kind of you you're left with a world where uh, a Zambia clearly couldn't pay everything that it had borrowed. B the IMF was insisting on real debt reduction. C that debt reduction had to include at a minimum both China and the foreign currency bondholders. Zambia and the IMF didn't think the local currency, foreign-held local currency bonds needed to be included in the restructuring. I think that's right. But that created a lot of complexity just because of the, the way those cash flows worked and the way that they had to be, uh, the way you had to sort of figure out how to adopt rules for low-income country debt sustainability, which were developed on uh, the thesis that the only lenders were hard currency lenders. And there's a certain longer-term structure usually there to this uh, new world where there's a little bit of foreign holdings of local currency debt, which had a shorter maturity. So it created some technical difficulties. And then you just kind of have to sort out a whole bunch of difficult questions uh, with new actors. Like, you know, usually the Paris Club does maturity extension, uh, bondholders do debt write-downs, and they get uh, paid back a little more rapidly. Well, in the Chinese case, you know, historically, the Chinese haven't actually preferred to extend out that far. Uh, and the Chinese have some doubts about how much, uh, uh, how many concessions they are willing to make to, in the near term, to create space for bond repayment. Equally, the bondholders are uncomfortable fitting into uh, certain of the parameters that were uh, negotiated with, uh, with China. Um, and then, uh, like there isn't, there, you know, it's a constantly evolving discussion about who China is, like which part of China is a quote, quote unquote, official creditor that negotiates with the official creditors and which part of China is a commercial creditor and are the commercial creditors, which are also Chinese state banks going to do the deal that the XM bank and the other official creditors did, or are they going to want to do the deal that commercial bondholders neg negotiated? And the net effect of all this was that China integrated into the system, not as one player, but as many. Uh, there's a lot of Chinese creditors on, you know, well, not a lot, but XM is the biggest creditor and it's the biggest creditor on the official creditors committee. And CDB, ICBC are amongst the biggest parts of the commercial creditor universe, although they don't negotiate with the bondholders. And the combination of this is that it introduced a lot of veto points into the process. And so we've the process has gotten bogged down at multiple points. We're three and a half years in. We're close to getting a deal. Uh, but, you know, you're really now haggling over how much uh, uh, more cash up front can bondholders get than the official creditors reading XM. 
And how much extra effort do they have to do in other ways to get that disproportionate share of near-term cash? So that's the negotiation that in some sense was always going to be a hard sticking point that should have happened a couple of years ago. We're finally gotten there and it's gotten tense. Um, I'm, I probably haven't done a great job of pulling back. I'm in, in the weeds. The big pulling back thing is uh, uh, we have, we're working through in real time how to restructure the debts of a country that going forward is going to rely on the IMF, the World Bank, uh, donors in the G7 for most of its financing that has borrowed a lot from China, that has borrowed a little bit from the bond market. And so the interests of all three groups have to be somehow accommodated and respected in the restructuring. And this is taking place, unlike some of the other restructurings, uh, in a fairly transparent process, because that was what was agreed in the common framework. But the net effect of a transparent process that has a lot of requirements, uh, procedural requirements, is that it, it becomes incredibly slow. There's um, another country that's doing something interesting with their financial situation. So Argentina is talking about re-dollarizing. Um, so I'm curious for your perspective on this narrative of rotating away from the dollar. A lot of people think we'll rotate to China's currency. But, you know, why do people want this de-dollarization story to be real? Like, why are people rooting for the empire to fall here? <laughs> oh, I, uh, maybe the Bitcoiners are rooting for the dollar empire to fall because they believe their crypto empire will rise out of its ashes. Um uh, the Chinese uh, and some others worry that the U.S. and Europe, I mean, like the sanctions against Russia, RG7, they're not primarily American. I mean, they are American, but the biggest and most impactful ones are European. Um, you know, people are nervous that, uh, you know, the dollar, dollar payments can be weaponized. And there is legitimate uh, concern if you're, if you don't share the United States values and you believe that you could become a target of the weaponization of the dollar in a sanctions game, you sort of think about ways in which you can minimize your vulnerability to sanctions. So I mean, that's that's the sense in which I think um, there is a discussion about uh, de-dollarization, and in some sense, it's a, you know, if you think about the Saudi-China swap line, the the basis for that is uh, uh, sanctions protection, sanctions insulation. In a world where the Saudis don't believe their interests and they're are completely aligned with those of the United States, they aren't completely aligned with China either. So it's kind of makes it a little bit more complex. Uh, Argentina is interesting. I mean, Argentina has been always been one of the countries in Latin America that has flirted with dollarization. They flirted with dollarization in the 1990s. What was called convertibility <laughs> was a one-to-one -one peg between the peso and the dollar, where the central bank, at least in theory, held enough reserves to always back the pesos in circulation completely with real dollars. Yeah, you know, they kind of violated that in some technical ways at the end. Um, but Argentina, is, you know, there's always been an open question uh, about whether Argentina would be better off with some variant of no monetary autonomy, adopting the dollar, avoiding inflation, uh, or whether Argentina would find it difficult and perhaps impossible to live within the constraints created by a hard dollar peg or full dollarization 
uh, because then you have to actually have liquid dollars to settle a lot of internal payments. And Argentina doesn't actually have that many liquid dollars. What's become, became really interesting uh, over the past couple of years is that, you know, uh, uh, the previous president, President Macri, went out and borrowed a lot of money from the bond market, couldn't pay it back, ended up in default. Uh, his success, borrowed a lot of money from the IMF, couldn't easily repay it. Then the subsequent Paronis government under Fernandez uh, didn't have access to either the bond market or to the IMF. Uh, they renegotiated the bonds. They constantly negotiated to push out uh, payments to the IMF. So without access to new dollar borrowing, they drew down their dollar reserves in the face of various adverse shocks, COVID, uh, some internal economic mismanagement, uh, a very real drought, which has really cut into Argentina's exports this year. And so they drew down their dollars. So there were no dollars left in the central bank. But they had this like swap line with China, and they started using the swap line with China uh, to make payments, including payments to the IMF, including payments to bondholders. So like people sort of view like the swaps and greater use of the yuan as this great threat to the United States. Uh, but in practice, uh, the yuan swap line has been used to make sure that, you know, Argentina, in a sense, doesn't default on the IMF, which is the U.S. in coalition. So the world becomes complex and messy. Uh, Malay, the newly elected president, when he takes office, uh, has said he wants to fully dollarize. He says he doesn't want to deal with uh, China. I mean, uh, I think the Chinese are communist. He's a anarcho-capitalist. Uh, but he, you know, his predecessors borrowed you know, got tw a twenty billion swap line. I think they've used ten of it. So, uh, you know, they're, you're kind of in bed with someone already because uh, either you default on that swap or you have to come up with the yuan to pay China back. And if you have to come up with the yuan to pay China back, you probably need dollars to convert into yuan, uh, you know, uh, and you don't actually have any dollars and you want to dollarize, which also takes dollars. So in a, a financial sense, it's, it literally is a mess. It is, it is intellectually intriguing. Just because and it, uh, the central bank in Argentina is really out of dollars. They were making payments in yuan because they didn't have dollars. Now, technically, they have a few dollars, but those dollars are the bank's required reserves. And even Argentina doesn't want to use the bank's required reserves to make payments that are not back to the banks. So that kind of just guarantees that the dollar deposits will leave the bank. You'll have a bigger problem in a run. So in terms of ability to use dollars, you kind of have to have dollars, and Argentina doesn't have any usable dollars. We know that. They've had usable yuan. Uh, the new president uh, doesn't want to maintain, stay on China's good side, so they probably won't have any more usable yuan, and he has an economic plan that requires a lot of liquid dollars, and he has none. So it's kind of uh, promise meets reality. How is that? Is that going to work? It doesn't sound like it's feasible at all for them to re-dollarize. <laughs> I think uh, I think you correctly uh, uh, read my skepticism about its uh, technical viability. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if he can scrounge up five, six, seven billion, he can replace the pesos in circulation with dollars in circulation. Uh, I think that's the maximum that can be done. Um, and then you still, 
can't really get rid of pesos if the central bank still has to pay its peso debt in pesos and the government still has to pay its peso debt in pesos and the banks still have peso deposits. Uh, so even if you reduce the number of pesos in circulation, you still have to deal with this uh, stock of, of peso debt. And so to fully dollarize, you have to convert that into dollars at some exchange rate. Um, and in all probability, you would have to restructure to uh, mm -hmm. handle these claims because there, are, you know, there aren't actually dollars to settle all of the debts that the central bank has taken on in pesos. There aren't Sir. dollars to settle uh, the debt that the government has taken on in pesos. Uh, so it, it does seem rather, rather difficult. Uh, if you're determined to do it, you would just end up have to do do end up in a world where there's uh, an inevitable, very broad restructuring of all the newly dollarized claims that cannot be paid on their original terms. But you're right, I am skeptical. So, Brad, you did your tour at USTR, uh, but now you got two options: uh, Zambia or Argentina. Which uh, uh, economic ministry would you rather uh, hang out in for the next twenty four months? Uh, well, uh, I think. Uh, Given that I would be rather completely at odds with the new president of Argentina, uh, I'll pick Zambia. Uh, but the the easiest answer is, uh, you know, uh, the the fun job is being the will be the being the debt advisor to Argentina as they restructure, um, and I do think that will be one of the more interesting jobs uh, in the international financial world over the next few years. So I want to switch lanes again because I saw this interesting chart that was talking about how pork prices are driving a lot of the deflation in China. And I think that's sort of interesting because it's really hard to get a good picture of certain economic situations. And oftentimes we can think that there's deflation happening in China, but it might just be pork prices. Could you talk about that relationship? Like, is it really just pork prices that's driving a lot of what we're seeing in China price movement wise? Well, uh Never underestimate how important pork is to the Chinese CPI. This wouldn't be the first time that pork has been uh, an important uh, source of volatility in prices. Uh, the Chinese do have a strategic pork reserve, famously. Uh, and I think that's very wise, given how important pork is uh, to domestic uh, stability inside China. Um, but I do think it's probably a bit of an exaggeration to say this is just uh, a pork uh, move uh, clearly real estate uh, prices. Well, they are. I mean, they they are actually a little bit. I think coming down, but they they are being allowed to clear. Uh, but there's an excess of uh, uh, supply of apartments. Um, and if the market were really allowed to equilibrate, the price of apartments would be coming down. Demand inside China has been pretty weak. Uh, you know, countries don't usually get so much growth from net exports if internal demand is strong. And China's gotten, you know, it won't get so much this year because, you know, global consumers got satiated with goods after spending their pandemic stimulus dollars on, you know, a new food processor, a new computer, a new phone. And they just had a, a, a natural pullback. But in 2020, 21 and 22, China got on average a percentage point of growth from net exports, which is usually a sign of an economy with weak domestic demand. And so I do think that you know, when you look at China, the productive capacity for goods is going up much more faster than internal demand for goods is going up. 
And, uh, you know, it's a little harder to get a clear read on services. Uh, there's an oversupply of housing. Uh, now there's an undersupply of, of completed apartments relative to the Chinese people's expectation that having pre-bought an apartment, you'll get an apartment. And so, you know, completions have slowed. But if you ignore the pre-sales issue, which is a real problem, there's a, a glut of available apartment supply relative to current demand. So I don't think it is it is quite uh, it is just pork. I think there's a broader problem of demand, a broader problem of an unrealized, of of an un an yet unresolved domestic real estate crisis uh, that is putting structural pressure on Chinese activity and on Chinese prices. So I think it is actually real. Um, it is certainly the case. Uh, that China didn't stimulate household demand in the way that the U.S. and Europe did in COVID. And it is certainly the case uh, that prices outside China have shot up over the past few years, while prices inside China have not. On top of that, there is a classic hog cycle. Um, uh, back when we were an agricultural country, uh, hog cycles, egg cycles, Classic agricultural economics did actually have an impact on overall prices. It still does. You know, when milk prices went up, people were very upset here. Uh, so pork prices are a factor, but I don't think they're the full story. And why hasn't China wanted to do direct transfer for household support? They seem to be avoiding that. That would stimulate demand. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe Jordan has a theory. Uh, look, I, I think it's now almost overdetermined. Uh, it would simulate demand, uh, but there are a couple of constraints. Uh, one constraint is that President Xi seems to personally be opposed, which is an important factor in China's political system. Uh, he believes he's written about uh, the dangers of welfareism, and he sort of thinks that if you send a check to a household and they buy a bunch of Chinese goods, you actually haven't gotten anything. Where's the asset? Whereas if you send uh, channel money through the state banks to build a new semiconductor factory, you'll end up with an asset with a factory. So he has preferred not to provide support to households. And he has preferred to want to sort of build up the capital base of China rather than, you know, send money to households who then spend money on haircuts. And then what have you gotten? You haven't even gotten any goods. And then finally, uh, a lot of um, Chinese policy has been driven by a somewhat arbitrary constraint, uh, but it's a constraint that's persisted over time. And that constraint is that China's tried to keep its central government headline fiscal deficit, which matters in the sense that it is the part of the fiscal deficit that is financed at the lowest cost by issuing safe Chinese central government bonds, of which there aren't many. Uh, so it, it's it's not just it does have an economic meaning, even if there's a lot of off balance sheet borrowing. But China's tried to keep the central government fiscal deficit below three percent of China's GDP, sometimes through accounting gimmicks, but often by just limiting what the central government does. And so, if you're going to abide by that constraint, you're not going to have money at the central government level to send out checks. Local governments can't borrow at as low a rate. They are right now really financially stretched anyway, and they don't want to take on this responsibility when they also have to bail out a bunch of property companies. They have to sort out their own 
finances with fewer land sales revenues, so forth and so on. Um, so those are the dominant theories, but it's, it is a strange feature of China's political economy. The other strange feature that I think people in the U.S. and in Europe, Japan, don't fully recognize is just how regressive China's system of taxation is. Nothing from personal income tax. 1% to a little over 1% of GDP. U.S. gets 8 uh, and the, the revenue mostly comes from VAT, which is a regressive consumption tax, and from social contributions, which are structured in a way that once you join the formal labor force, you have a big pay-in. So relatively low-wage workers pay a higher share of their salaries and social contributions than wealthier workers. So the net effect is one of the most regressive tax systems in the world, which pulls money out of... Uh, lower the, the, the bottom 50% of China's workforce, and they don't get much cash transfer back. So I don't think it's a surprise that consumption is weak, but it is a choice. And it's a set of bad choices. And it's a set of choices that increasingly have negative spillovers to the world. But, you know, you can sort of tell these are the things that I think actually end up in the long run really driving ultimately a lot of trade flows. You don't have household support. Your consumers can't spend. You don't import. And your economy grows through exporting, but it's not something you kind of classically negotiate in a trade negotiation. And they also have this overcapacity situation, too. I think it was an article from The New York Times that said that China had enough factories to produce enough cars for the United States, uh, China, Europe, and the U.S. Or, yeah, so the U.S., China, and Europe. So enough factories to produce cars for all of those places. So how does that overcapacity situation tie into the economic outlook for China? Well, it raises questions about whether she is right that you can keep on building factories without causing problems. Like, you know, she wants to build more factories because he thinks he will have more assets, more physical assets at the end. But if you have a bunch of factories that are that can't produce, uh, that's also uh, a problem. Just because you have a factory doesn't mean there's demand for the factory's output. It also means, uh, you know, that there's pressure to use those factories to meet global demand. Uh, we've seen a really big rise in Chinese auto exports. Uh, a portion of that is high-end EVs, BYD. You know, Tesla loves the economics of uh, the Shanghai Gigafactory. Uh, but a, a, a significant part of China's uh, export growth are lower-end internal combustion engine cars that are going to uh, emerging in frontier markets globally, where China can now supply completely functional cars, not decked out SUVs for the U.S. market, but functional smaller cars at a very low price point. And so you see pressure to export. Um, and you see a huge, huge, huge growth in Chinese export capacity. Um, I think that there's a generalized issue with China uh, where because, uh, you know, the central government values physical output. It likes to see an expansion of supply. Uh, it is prioritizing investments in uh, new sectors and catch-up sectors with some success in, say, electric vehicles, where China is a undoubtedly a leader. Um, and then you have a lot of local governments that want to make position their local economies to meet this goal of providing this supply. So they provide subsidies to producers locally. And then you have banks that are quite willing to lend uh, to enterprises that have local state sponsorship. And so you 
in industry after industry, you find uh, that capacity expands without uh, clear reference to actual demand. And that does introduce distortions into the Chinese market, distortions into the global market. Sometimes it works. I mean, China's hefty investments in solar PVs have brought down PV prices. Um, and that has been important in encouraging the expanded use of solar. Uh, China's uh, built up you know, essentially, you know, China built up EV capacity really fast and it already had built up internal combustion engine capacity to meet Chinese demand and then some. So when you have the EVs on top of the internal combustion engine uh, capacity, the overall amount of capacity far exceeds uh, Chinese demand and Chinese vehicle demand is, is bigger than U.S. or European. So you have this uh, enormous capacity. The counter argument is that U.S. isn't going to start buying the kind of small cars that China produces. So China cannot meet U.S. demand for big old SUVs. Uh, but China's... Um, I feel like if you can build a small car, you can probably build a slightly bigger car, too. Well, this is one US. of those well, cases where trade, trade policy does matter. The big ones face a honking yeah. 25% tariff. Um, yeah, well, let, let, let's stay on that for a second, Brad. Like, does it make sense? Like, is... Are you know where do you draw the line for a sort of industry that's like strategic enough to deserve, um, you know, trade protection? I think it's uh, uh, ultimately a judgment, ultimately a political call. I have no personal difficulty saying that since uh, the green transition is being subsidized, uh, the subsidies should flow to manufacturers in the United States and in America's friends. Uh, China clearly made that call when it decided to build up its own green industry. It had strong localization requirements. You know, in order for Tesla to sell in China, Tesla had to build a factory in China. Uh, same as when true in wind way back uh, at the start. And um, it certainly was true for high-speed rail. So that that I think when you're transitioning to uh, the new industries and you're relying heavily on government subsidies, um, uh, there is a, a reasonable argument that you want those subsidies to build up your own industry. Um, and I certainly think the interesting question is not whether you're going to let the subsidies flow to China. China didn't let its subsidies flow to the rest of the world. The symmetric result would be China subsidizes China and the rest of the world subsidizes the rest of the world. The difficulty is, you know, the U.S. and Europe and Japan haven't agreed to share subsidies. Uh, so we don't have uh, reciprocal uh, arrangements amongst the G7, amongst our friends, amongst our allies. That worries me more than the, the lack of complete openness with respect to China. Um, I do think chips are significant. Uh, foundational, uh, cutting edge. And I do think that across a set of industries where, you know, the frontier of uh, human achievement is advancing very rapidly, you can make an, a strong argument uh, that the world's biggest uh, economy should have capabilities at that frontier. And then that case becomes even stronger when there are clear military applications, either at the frontier or at the lagging edge, because you're 
you're not going to have set, you know, one generation old semiconductor plants unless you built cutting edge semiconductor plants 10 years ago. Sure. Uh, so I, I, I think that there are a set of reasonable choices there. I think there's some other sectors that are strategic that we haven't done as much. Personally, I think we should be doing a lot more, probably not trade protection, but investment in uh, pharmaceutical production, uh, active ingredients. It does worry me if we rely on one country with a complicated relationship like China for our full supply of certain uh, essential medicines. It's just, it seems to me reasonable to want uh, multiples of centers of global production for medicines, which in a crisis, and if there is a crisis that forces rationing, the rationing will always favor the country of production. Um, I think that's a clear lesson. I think it is reasonable for Africa for that reason, even though it's more expensive to want some of its own vaccine production. Um, you know, you you have to, in a, for on medicines, you have to worry about uh, worlds where demand exceeds supply and you can't, we don't allow uh, supply to just flow to the highest prices when human life is involved. Um, but then going beyond that, it is a debate, it's a discussion, uh, you know, it's a continuum. Can we, can we stay on the, uh, uh, like cross subsidization across the G7 for strategic technologies, uh, point what's your, sure. what would your ideal, uh, vision of that? look like? Uh, what I think uh, the U.S. should do and what I think Europe should do is kind of, it's most easy to explain with the highest profile example, which is the electric vehicle subsidies. Um, the pure free trade uh, approach would say you're, you're subsidizing green vehicles because you want people to use more green vehicles. If China can supply EVs at a lower price point, you should your goal is more green vehicles. It's not more domestically made green vehicles. I wouldn't go that far. I mean, I think China reserved its EV subsidies for cars that were made in China with a Chinese battery and often with a battery made in China by a Chinese firm. Um, the reciprocal policy, it would be that uh, uh, U.S. EV subsidies are reserved for U.S made EVs. That is that is literally China's policy with U.S. made batteries. Um, I think that is a little too restrictive. Uh, I think Europe, which now is trying to launch a within the WTO rules trade case against China, but doesn't want to do buy Europe on its EV vehicle subsidies because it's a technical violation of the WTO provisions on non-discrimination, to just kind of get over its concerns about technical violations of the WTO, do what China did, do a buy Europe uh, provision for its EVs. And then the US and Europe would both have subsidies that go to their own production. And we can agree to uh, give Europe reciprocal access to our subsidies and we would get reciprocal access to European subsidies. So American companies or European companies producing in the US could make an EV with a U.S. or European battery and sell it either in Europe or the U.S. and qualify for each other's subsidies. So you call that subsidy sharing. You can call that a lot of different things. Technically, is a violation of the WTO, looks like a violation of the WTO principle of non-discrimination. Um, it is functionally fully reciprocal because China has set up 
its subsidies in ways that only cars that were on its list ever qualified and no import ever qualified. So I don't, you know, it's, it's a, substantively, it's a reciprocal response to China, but it is liberal in the sense of allowing uh, great scope for trade uh, between allies, between friends. And, you know, the same basic idea could be extended to Japan. And that's kind of what I, what I think makes sense. You know, you go, you can extend that to some other sectors, for some other sectors, it doesn't work. But for those sectors where the U.S. and Europe are both subsidizing the consumption of strategic goods or the consumption of green goods, uh, those consumption subsidies could be shared reciprocally uh, with production in, on either side of the Atlantic or with Japan, either side of the Pacific. So we're talking a lot about global cooperation, how countries are getting along. And you recently published this piece talking about special drawing rights. Could you talk about this key feature of the economy, how they came about, what they are, and why they're not working anymore? Well, uh, I'm not sure they ever worked. They used to be kind of this small, esoteric part of uh, the IMF's balance sheet that no one paid any attention to. Uh, SDR stands for Special Drawing Rights. Um, it is a technically uh, the IMF's own special currency. It is uh, composed of a basket of five global currencies, dollar by far the biggest, then euro, then the yuan, debatable, then the British pound and the Japanese yen. But when the IMF creates SDRs, it basically just lends its members an SDR forever. Right? It just gives you a permanent loan of SDRs. You do have to pay interest on it. The interest is the composite interest rate on its for the five component currencies. It used to be zero. Now it's like four. But you also get credited in your SDR account with the IMF an equal sum. So if you do nothing, IMF has lent you SDRs forever. You're paying interest on your SDRs back to the IMF forever. Uh, but you have an SDR in your account at the IMF that is collecting interest. You just collect interest on that forever. So there's, in some sense, if you don't use the SDR, nothing happens. And most SDRs, it turns out, are generally not used. When there were only a small number of SDRs, no one really cared. Uh, but in the pandemic, there was an agreement to kind of ease global financial conditions, help out low-income countries. Uh, by providing a 500 billion SDR, like 600-ish billion dollar allocation of SDRs. Like 20, 25 billion of that went to very low-income countries. And that really did actually help a lot of really low-income countries. They did use the SDRs. Now, how do you use an SDR? You take your SDR to a special trading window at the IMF and you exchange it for dollars or euros. And the provider of dollars or euros gets your SDR and they will have a, a positive SDR balance at the IMF, and they'll get interest on it. So it's just, uh, you have to go through this special window. You can't just go into the market and sell your SDRs. And then a set of countries which aren't low income, but are in trouble, got a lot of SDRs, and some of them use them. I mean, Argentina, before it used the Chinese swap line to pay the IMF, used the SDR allocation to pay the IMF. A lot of other countries you know, use this to pay the IMF, which freed up a bit of cash during the pandemic. But the bulk of the SDRs ended up on the balance sheet of the G7 countries in China, Saudi Arabia, some wealthier uh, emerging economies. So they've, they're generally speaking, they've, they've, they haven't been used. Now, if you don't use them, there's no pressure on the system. 
Uh, but if you want to use them, you're going to put more pressure on this voluntary trading window at the IMF. And so what, what I have tried to argue is we need a system where more of the SDRs that were handed out to the G7 countries, to the U.S., are actually used. Uh, you know, some people use them by lending them to the IMF and then the IMF on lends them. I think the capacity of the IMF to do that is somewhat constrained, particularly going forward, because the IMF is a balance of payments lender. It doesn't really do project finance. It's not really its mission. So what I and a co-author, Stephen Paduano, have suggested is that the World Bank should issue SDR link bonds, get a bunch of SDRs from the G7 countries, and then go to this voluntary trading window and swap them for real currency. Right now, it's a small market, and the people who supply dollars and euros against SDR tend to be the G7 countries. So what I and Stephen have suggested is there needs to be a, a broader rethinking of the system where countries with a lot of reserves like China or Saudi Arabia or even Brazil or India contribute to the function of the SDR system by buying SDRs in the SDR window, handing up some of their dollars and euros. So it, it isn't just the US, the UK, the euro area countries that provide liquidity. It is all countries with really big reserves. Switzerland, Singapore, you know, Taiwan, technically not a member of the IMF, so can't do it. But, you know, conceptually, big reserve holders. And then the countries that are sitting on reserve uh, SDRs now that don't have a way of using them would buy these SDR-linked bonds. The World Bank would get very long-term funding, which I think would let it stretch its balance sheet a little further. And the countries that give up their SDRs would get these SDR-linked bonds. They actually would settle in dollars or euros. So they could be sold in the market. So the idea is to kind of get the SDRs flowing from the balance sheets of advanced economies to the balance sheets of countries with big reserves, get them flowing through the World Bank and provide this long-term stable source of funding for a World Bank that is better able to grow, uh, can make use of new capital more efficiently because it can mobilize very long-term, relatively cheap, not zero cost, you have to pay the SDR rate, but relatively cheap long-term funding and put it to good use. And you know, the World Bank can lend for projects. It's a development bank. We need to kind of remember the value of a development bank. We can learn a little bit from China there. I think specifically like what a lot of people are worried about is tipping points, like what's going to change everything. Is there a tipping point that you're watching or something that you're like, okay, this could definitely change a lot of stuff if it does happen? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, doesn't seem like it's going to happen, but one tipping point that I'm worried about is, uh, you know, if, if China really decides to let the yuan depreciate by a big sum, you know, if China cuts interest rates to one and lets the yuan go to eight, uh, to me, that's a, a bit of a, a tipping point. It would be a China that recognizes and kind of gives up on trying to grow internally and just is looking to export its way out of the property mess. So that's one tipping point. Um, the other ones why are kind does, of boring. Go why, ahead. Does, why does depreciation make domestic growth more difficult? No, it's not that depreciation makes domestic growth more difficult. It's that China would depreciate because there is no domestic growth. 
Um, it would then grow on the back of exports. So you can view it as a choice to use exports rather than to break uh, dishes, change domestic policies, do household stimulus. So you can view it as a policy choice that substitutes. Or you can view it as uh, uh, evidence that China has run out of scope to do conventional stimulus. And so it has to, <laughs> if it wants to um, recover, recover through external demand. And an already imbalanced China will become an even more unbalanced Chinese economy. <laughs> so it's, it's partially because it's a choice. It reflects an internal decision and partially because it's a reflection of internal weakness. Um, the other tipping, like, I think we're at a tipping point for a lot of weaker borrowers in the global system uh, with long-term U.S. interest rates of uh, four to five and short-term rates over five. Uh, so, you know, I think it's, it, is, it is not too much to say that we're kind of, we're in a, a, an unstable equilibrium where there are a lot of countries that cannot refinance when they have to compete against safe U.S. Treasury bills that pay 5%, but they haven't yet defaulted and they're running down their reserves. And I think at some point that unstable equilibrium uh, has to get resolved, either it gets resolved through a lot of uh, emergency lending to strategically important countries so they can pay their debts and cover their fiscal deficits, or it gets resolved through default, or it gets resolved because the path of U.S. interest rates changes and U.S. rates come down. But I do think you know there is conceptually a tipping point where the, the set of countries in debt distress is not limited to sort of Zambia, Sri Lanka, Suriname, and Ghana, and it includes much more, uh, much bigger and in some cases, much more strategically significant countries. So that's another tipping point. Well, I guess the other potential major tipping point would be, uh, you know, if Sino-American rivalry becomes something uh, that uh, uh, escalates and uh, becomes a, a true Cold War, worse. Um, and we go from talking about de-risking to actually de-risking. Uh, and I think we haven't, I think there's been a lot more talk about decoupling, de-risking and deglobalization than there has been actual de-risking, decoupling or deglobalization. And so if we felt compelled to, or chose to move to a world of true de-risking, uh, and I, you know, you can debate terms. I think de-risking is actually more demanding than decoupling. Like if decoupling means you have less bilateral trade between the U S and China, that doesn't, that's not that hard to achieve. You know, you, you buy Chinese goods through Southeast Asia. So parts go to Southeast Asia, screws get put on and you buy the goods. To me, de-risking means you don't have critical components that are sole sourced from China. That's more demanding. Uh, so to get there, I think that would be, uh, it really seriously moving in that direction would be another tip. Um, so I am curious to ask you about this. Uh, you know, China gave the United States some pandas. What do you think about panda diplomacy? I'm a fan. I think anyone who's opposed to panda diplomacy is a curdmudgeonly uh, old fart uh, who did not enjoy a stuffed panda growing up. Uh, I mean, you can debate the ethics of zoos and so forth and so on, but pandas are lovely zoo animals. They just like to sit around, look cute, 
and they're very happy staying in one place and eating bamboo. Um, I am a, a big fan of panda diplomacy. I'm not a big fan of the fact that China doesn't liberally allow other countries to benefit from the global supply of pandas. I think China's export controls on pandas are a, uh, a grave threat to global, to human happiness. And I think China needs to share the intellectual property embedded in pandas and let other countries keep baby pandas born on their soil, not have this policy of pulling American-born pandas out of America uh, and returning them to China. I think, uh, I think we need the genetic uh, blueprint from a Chinese panda so that we can have second-generation American pandas. But a shortage of pandas is a problem. Brad, I mean, look, de-risking, like how hard can it be to take the DNA samples? Um, you look, I would take, I think I might take this investment over the pharmaceuticals. That bridge we can cross, we can, you know, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. But um, uh, a strategic pander. I, I like maybe like we have to do investment. something drastic, like collect, uh, I, know, we, I guess a lot of uh, pandas are now born out of artificial insemination. They are bears. Maybe you can get a black bear. Uh, but I think, you know, like pandas, they don't, they're, they're kind of weird bears. They don't eat what other bears eat. You know, you may need, it may not be as easy, but yeah, <laughs> this is, this is a, this is a problem that American ingenuity needs to solve. I mean, we have great panda exhibits in multiple zoos and we have to go to Europe to see a, a, a real live panda. Um, it's, it's an outrage. Um, and I am, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's bi-directional. I think, uh. I think, uh, you know, China should get all the all the brown bears and bald eagles at once. Uh, yes, I mean, uh, we have there's no shortage of uh, bald eagles and rehabilitation. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, 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 I think she went a little too far when he, you know, we, f trade war is one thing, but pulling all the pandas back to China. You know, that, that's just that's, you know, it's 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 it. it only so he could uh, make a magnanimous gesture by sending a few back. I mean, to me, it reminds me of how uh, China XM approaches Pakistan. They demand repayment, and then three months later, they give them a new loan. But they always you know, want the old generation to be repaid before you get the new loan. We had to give our pandas back before we could get new ones. It puts China in a structural advantage because, you know, the pandas are important. But I think it actually makes them look more obnoxious. Like, I don't think I don't think that whole like like two step of like, we're going to take them away and we're going to give them back. I don't think that makes them look any better. I don't really understand. It, it like, makes it just look highlighting, like, the... like like highlighting the dependency every four years or so when these leases run out. Um, You know, this is what's going to not negotiating the, new the leases. I mean, it should just be. Yeah, I agree. And it's. Uh, if, if there, if it, it is unfortunate, but it is true that I do not think, uh, giant pandas managed to cross the Himalayas. So I think, you know, they're, they're only in the bamboo forests of China. So like it is really <laughs> so uh, a product that is sole source from China, uh, not through industrial policy, but, but by nature, but it does have uh, global appeal. Um, a world where only China can benefit from pandas is a poor world. I think I think there there's probably some really cool like trade flow map of like all the loans that go between all the zoos in the world. I'd be really I mean, we'll, we'll try to look uh, that. Yeah. That seems really cool. Yeah, there 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 no doubt is, and um, you can uh, we could I'm sure some diplomat has gone to the Chinese and shown how 
how uh, the U.S. is being discriminated against in the global allocation of pandas. Uh, uh, so we've gone from being the preferred location for pandas to being uh, uh, the least preferred. But, you know, 737s matter, too. Um, it'd be nice if China, like, uh, bought a few again and maybe a few 787s. I'm not sure China wants to be sole source dependent on Airbus. The C919 is not going to meet all Chinese demand. So well, there, there are other important issues which are kind of discreet. Brad Sester and Kyle Scallon, thank you two so much for being a part of China Talk. I hope you enjoyed this episode and this year's worth of free China Talk content. The most helpful thing you can do for the show is to share it. Post on Twitter, share in group chats, or even an email. Thank you so much for listening and see you next time. For our music this week, we've got I Hear a Rhapsody, a jazz standard recorded in 1962 by Bill Evans and Jim Hall. 